Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. For more than 400 years, Shakespeare's works have been performed, read and loved throughout the world. And they've been reinterpreted for each new generation. This October, the Hogarth Press are launching the Hogarth Shakespeare, which sees Shakespeare's works retold by acclaimed and best-selling novelists of today. A major publishing project currently totaling publication in 14 languages and across 20 countries, it launches with Jeanette Winterson's cover version of The Winter's Tale, The Gap of Time, this autumn, and then with Howard Jacobson's version, The Merchant of Venice, Shylock is My Name, coming in February 2016, ahead of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death next April. The Hogarth Shakespeare series will also include Anne Tyler, Margaret Atwood, Joe Nesbo, Tracy Chevalier, Gillian Flynn and Edward St. Oban. But right now I am thrilled to be joined by both Howard and Jeanette. Good morning Howard and Jeanette, thank you so much for, for joining me. Now tell me how you got into this extraordinary business. Who had the idea first and who, who came to you? I don't know about Howard, but it was I, I heard about it through Random House that they, they suddenly decided they were going to join in with Bardomania for 2016 and that we, we would all have to be involved and that if we didn't, there'd be a lot of bother. I had a call from my agent. Uh, you see, you got the civilised route. <laughs> what were your first reactions? Did you think, my what agents, a preposterous idea? My, well, I did, I did first of all. But the magic word Shakespeare always freezes you in your chair. Shakespeare, something to do with Shakespeare. You never, you never say no to anything to do with Shakespeare. But he said that this project was going to happen. And um, do I have a play I would like to write a contemporary novel about? I said, I absolutely do. And it's Hamlet. He said, just give me a minute. And he went and rang the publishers and said, mm-mm. I said, okay, they don't want Hamlet. Some, someone else is doing Hamlet, is it? And then, then something, and then a, a, a bell rang. And I said to my agent, they want the Merchant of Venice, don't they? And he said, mm, they want the Merchant of Venice. Don't ask me why they wanted me to do the Merchant of Venice, but that was what they wanted. And, and do you I, think I, they always wanted it? So they were just waiting for you to get there in your own time? Yes, and they assumed I wouldn't take so long about it. <laughs> you wouldn't go through every other play before you got to it. But that, you had reservations about, about Merchant of Venice. Well, the interesting interesting to me is that it, it was not a play I thought about doing because it's a play I've kind of wiped from the canon. And the reason for that is we did it at school when I was 13 and we all thought it was a silly play because we thought the casket thing where you have to choose, you know, the three suitors have to choose the casket, was daft, because anyone given a test knows you don't choose the, the golden casket. That's too obvious. So we thought that was silly. Well, it didn't turn out silly, though, did it? I mean, that's how we got to the financial crash, because everyone chose the golden casket. Well, yeah, but we were 13 then. Oh, and there, was no, there was no financial <laughs> crash. Had we known then what we know now? Yes. Um, and the other thing that, 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 that put me off, doing it was that had always put me off the play was Shylock because it embarrassed the Jewish boys at school because we were somehow or other made to feel uncomfortable. There was this Jew who was a moneylender. We didn't like that bit. And, and he said, hadn't a Jew eyes. And that became a kind of joke between us all. Whenever we felt that, you know, someone was saying something against the Jews, we would fall into caricature mode, hunch our shoulders, wring our hands and go, hadn't a Jew eyes? And we'd... So, it had been associated in my mind with all those sorts of it was em- it was a caricature play yes mm. and and also an issue play and mm. uh, one of those one of those things that they kind of set at school so that you can also write essays about anti-semitism and things like that so it had not been my shakespeare really 
until I then until I reread it for the, I said I will reread it and see if I can do something. And when I read it, I was wild about it. Jeanette, the Winter's Tale. I mean, it really does speak to a lot of things that you've examined in your work, doesn't it? So I'm guessing it was more of a sort of obvious match. Is that right? Yeah, it was obvious. It was a, it was a straightaway match. Um, I mean, obviously, it's got an abandoned baby in it. So um, being one, that was going to have some resonance. You know, you, you never you never escape the first wounds. You go on working with them inevitably, don't you, in their different shapes and forms as they as they affect you. And then you allow them to affect you know, your writing in the world. So I've always loved that play because of it and because of the idea that, 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 that whatever is lost will be found, which seemed to me to have a redeeming quality to it, which I have to have, uh, partly because I'm resolutely cheerful, you know, and even in my own darkest hours, I've always thought um, there will be something on the other side of this. There will be um, a return, a redemption, you know, another chance. And the late plays of Shakespeare are all about those second chances in a way which I've just found sort of illuminating and, and glorious. And I've loved the play probably for about 25 years, even though it, it's it, it's complicated, you know, it has this violent, explosive opening, um, which is so dramatic of Leontes' jealousy. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's it's Othello in a, in a different register, because at least in Othello you have some sense of how it's happened, because Iago, um, the malevolent agent, is on the outside. Once you get to the Winter's Tale, that malevolent agent is, is, is on the inside, very much sort of anticipating later developments in psychoanalysis, you know, 300 years later, that the, the, the thing which, which will trigger this actually isn't anything to do with the fact that your wife's holding hands with your best friend, so what? And they love each other, so what? It's been like that for years, but all of a sudden he completely flips. So you've got that, and then you have this odd pastoral setting uh, in Act Two, which nobody ever knows what to do with when they put it on stage. There always has lots of shepherds dancing about looking you know, embarrassed. Uh, and then you have the strange, hurried, it's so quick, the, the end result. Suddenly, you know, everybody's back on a ship, um, rushing over um, to Sicilia, and everything gets sorted out rapidly. But the whole of the play is in these gaps. Uh, and that, you know, that's why I called it the gap of time, not just because it's a phrase that comes up twice in the play, but because everything that you want to know about the plays left unsaid. And I thought for, for a, a fiction writer to go into those gaps mm. and fill those gaps would be a fascinating process. So that was the choice. It's very striking, I mean, the words you used very early on, we never escape our first wounds. Mm. Um, that is sort of one of the things that the play is about, isn't it? Yeah. That here is this child abandoned, in fact, banished really, taken to a completely different setting, grows up in a yes. completely different world. Kites, ravens, wolves and bears. That's it. He commends it, mm. the child, to, to those ministries. Can she then... Good on animals, isn't he? Good on Shakespeare. animals. Lovely on animals. We have monkeys yeah. in The Merchant yeah. of Venice. Yeah, you do. A wilderness. I mean, a, a, wonderful, a wilderness of monkeys. A wilderness of monkeys. Yes, is that, is that the true term for it? A wilderness of monkeys. No, I think he's coined it. Yeah, it's a good. Well, it's a true term you, now. It's, well, it's a very Jewish term. Yeah. Because you know you, the, the whole reason for being a Jew is that you don't want to be a monkey anymore. <laughs> that's that's what Judaism grows. That was the point of it. We have to have an ethic, an ethic, so that we are not you know living mm. like monkeys. Mm. So a wilderness of monkeys. It's as though at that moment the whole world is returned to. You're that back in monkey world. Desolation, the desolation of it, because yeah. his daughter has just done something yes. that's as un-Jewish as you could possibly 
do. Yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Just, no, you haven't. I don't want to put my animals in the way of your animals. No, no, I think it's true. I mean, he's good at animals. You know, it's nearly as good as Leviticus, isn't it? I mean, everything's in there. That All the stuff that you can eat and can't eat and wish had never existed. Yeah, it's a shame whenever you... If, this is, the problem for a Jew is whenever you hear the name of an animal, you have to ask yourself whether you can eat it or not. <laughs> but it's usually no. <laughs> Mainly it's no. But you wouldn't want to eat monkey. And you wouldn't have, want to eat lapwing either. Oh, no. It does have the most... It's It's got the world's most famous stage direction, which is also an animal, isn't it? Except pursued by a bear. Yes, it's a in the winter stage stuff. But it is about this idea of can the world be restored? Can mm. it be broken apart? And can it be restored? And that recurs throughout Shakespeare, doesn't it? That happens in a lot of it intensifies of the in the late plays. Um, he's, you know, his preoccupations move towards the sense of whether whether or not, you know, that it's not a final answer or some sort of utopia, but it, it's whether people themselves um, can both change who they are, even by one degree, to move slightly into into being better people and whether that allows the world then to flourish rather than perish which is of course where we are now isn't it it's a shift of emotional gear for him yeah. though isn't it because um it's not true i don't think it is true to say that the, that, that principle of change is at the heart of the other play hamlet ends the rest mm. is silence the there's a there's a yaga no no it's the late play where the, it it's it's things, you mean prior to that it's sort prior of to the, it's, prior to the late play i don't think there's a i think mm. there is a uh, a, a, a weight of non-promise at the end of the play. Mm. It's over. There is no more to say, and no more would happen. There's even a. There's even. It's Othello and Macbeth are desolate mm. at the end, and Hamlet's been so sparky that you could never quite say it's desolate. But it's. It's. There's nothing further to look forward to. Mm. I think in Shakespeare until yeah. you get to the to the late play, and something something has mm. happened to him. Is that well, one thing that's happened to him is that the heroine no longer has to die in the service of the hero's soul, and that's a step forward. So, you know, the fact that Hermione is, is preserved, as Shakespeare puts it, is alive, uh, instead of um, being dead, like Desdemona, um, for instance, that's why I'm thinking, you know, with, it's the same Othello plot, really, mm. except it's, you know, it's altered in, in interesting degrees, that, that she's alive is really important, you know, and, and even with you know, King Lear, where Cordelia does die, um, it's not quite too late. Lear has some sense of what he's done, you know, and that does matter. It does. It does matter. And you know, Shakespeare seems to become obsessed by then with with it how the the, the feminine as a, as a sort of patient soul can change this the impetuous recklessness of his heroes and allow something reflective uh, to take the place of, of of all the big emotions. You know, anger, jealousy, rage. I was fascinated by in both. Your your retellings, cover versions. We'll talk about how you decided to sort of think about them. That um, the relationship between fathers and daughters was such a, a big one because Jeanette, you've written about mothers and daughters. Howard, you've written a lot about mothers and, and sons. So this was, in a sense, kind of new territory for you, was it? New territory for me to write about fathers and daughters. Mm. I, I I have a son, but I've never had a daughter. I have a sister, and my sister had. A fairly tempestuous, tempestuous relation with my dad when she when she was young, and that was gripping, gripping enough to behold, and sometimes upsetting. Um, and I thought when I when I was thinking how I could, when I was wondering what to do with uh, with this for a modern novel, I thought that's probably the most in, that would interest me more than anything else. Actually, that um, the relation between Shylock and and his daughter it's very painful, and it does have that line. Not, I would not have done this for a wilderness 
among his his up his dis, his grief at what at what Jessica has done uh, is piercing. Um, it's a it's a perfidy. Hers is a perfidy, almost unlike anything else in Shakespeare. It is a monstrous thing that she does. She can't just run off. Uh, she can't just run, okay. You know, her father's boarded the house, and he doesn't want her to hear all that noise in Venice, and he doesn't want her to be involved in the carnival. But given what they're like, those those men that we meet at the beginning of the Merchant of Venice, if I was a father, I would board the house even you know even even more carefully than than he does because they're pigs. They're absolute pigs out there. But she, and I'm talking about animals, and I choose the word, they're pigs. Um, and it's not enough for her that she must run off with one, but she must abjure her father's faith. She must abuse her father's faith. She must steal the ring that the mother gave gave Shylock. That's a, just a quick line. I, I had it of, it, the, 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 the ring she steals when she runs off to fund the elopement, if you like, and to make herself even more desirable to the vile Lorenzo is a ring which her mother, her now no longer alive mother, gave to Shylock. So that's an upsetting thing to do. But then to, as it were, pawn it in Genoa. Something about Genoa seems very, for some reason, sinister in that. And to buy, and she buys a monkey with it. And a monkey is everything, everything that you know. You, a Jew should know. You don't. You don't buy a monkey. You know, you could. It would have been ugly, whatever she did. But the one thing you don't do is buy a monkey. What with a monkey, and at that moment of his desolation, I thought, "This is. I want to do something with that." I understand his. I understand his rage, uh, and I understand also the 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 the, the sorrow actually um, of his incompetence with her. It's just been played by Jonathan Price. Has just been a Shylock at the Globe Theatre, and. Uh, Jessica was his real daughter, apparently, which is very interesting to me because it was played with an unusual tenderness. One forgets um, the difficulty of a, of a man bringing up a daughter on his own. One forgets about Mrs. Shylock, where is Mrs. Shylock, apart from that one line. And not enough sympathy has been given, I think, to just the, 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 the difficulties of a father bringing up a daughter. And that was yes, I wanted to make I wanted to make something of that, and I felt a rage against an unusual rage against Jessica that exceeds even the rage I feel for Goneril and Re and, and Regan. Um, there's just something I can't forgive. I can't forgive Jessica. It's not my business to forgive or not forgive characters in Shakespeare. I don't. I I suppose what I mean is I think Shakespeare cannot forgive cannot forgive Jessica. Her. Jeanette, rage, desolation, sorrow. What do you think at, about that level of forgiveness? I think because we found it, we we we've. Um, well, it's true in my play. It might not be yeah. true in your play, but it's true in my play. Yes, I think it's why she does it. It's it's, it's an interesting question, um, but it's no worse, really. You know, going back to an earlier play than 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 Helena falling for the loads and Bertram. Um, you know, Shakespeare's women tend to end up with men who are really not suitable at all. I mean, it, I think one of the ways that Shakespeare deals with the feminine is to show how dreadful lots of the men are uh, that are around them. And, of course, yes, it's a terrible choice. Um, but I think it's it's something that we see continually, and it's also a very modern situation, isn't it, uh, that very often uh, women do choose terrible men, and we all look and we think, 
why did you do that? You know, Robert Graves, why have so many lovely gifted girls married impossible men? And then on goes the poem. You know, what well, the, the world is full of impossible men. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> it is. Uh, and I think, you know, Shakespeare is good at, at, at showing that in this strange, non-judgmental way so that we do have to make our own minds up. Um, and also, as you say, you know, when in Shakespeare too, there are absent feminines like where is the mother, where is the wife, that's usually a situation which is going to be richly problematic once an essential part of, of the female influence is removed, then what happens? And of course, no matter how you barricade your daughter in, she is the symbol of new life and the forward generation is going to escape. And I think, you know, that on a symbolic level, that's what Shakespeare's saying, you know, you cannot barricade somebody in because they're going to get out and what's going to happen is far worse than if you introduce them to a, a few nice oh, guys absolutely. in polite society. Absolutely. But it, and, and you're right. I mean, his, his feelings always go in that direction. But they also, because mm. Shakespeare's feelings always go in every direction, mm, they, they are also very, he is very, very sympathetic for, to fathers mm. altogether. Mm. I mean, even Desdemona's father, mm. you feel, has got reason to be anxious that his, even if his language for describing what she's doing with Othello doesn't appeal to us. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, you understand why he feels, why he feels what he does. And the other thing that's true about the absent, the absent woman in, in, in The Merchant of Venice is you do feel if there'd been and Mrs. Shylock. Mm. And Mrs. Shylock might have sat him down and said, okay, you've had your joke. Mm. That was a good, that was a good jest. You've kind of won. Mm. You've morally won. Now just, she, mm. she may have softened something. Let it go. Mm. The obdurateness, mm. which, which I'm not going to say that, you know, all men are obdurate until, mm. until there's a woman to kind of reason with them. But it's not uncommon, mm. that. And you do feel that there's something that's part of the, the tragedy of Shylock, I think, that there's no one there's no one to turn to. There's no friend and there's no softening influence. And he just gets more and more adamantine without any help, without any advice from anybody. If only, if only there would have been a Mrs. Shylock, but then we wouldn't have had a play. No. But it is the same in The Winter's Tale because, you know, there is, once, once you've got, you know, Hermione and Paulina uh, who are, there in a way to, to to restrain the situation at the court um and we know that polixenes appears not there appears not to be a mrs polixenes um and florizel appears not to have a mother so there are know, not enough women around there are this no, that, have um, this softening influence that's right so the, when you know obviously when florizel meets perdita later on you know and he's utterly smitten you know, you know he adores her he adores what she's bringing to him and then we get the other scene of irrational jealousy where polixenes is behaving nearly as badly as leontes uh and you think you know that Shakespeare does that just to the point where we would we had a lot of sympathy for Polixenes as a character, and and then poor old Perdita is is, is threatened with all kinds of, of necrophiliac insults and tortures uh, from this man who should know better because he's been there himself and he doesn't know better. It's as though everything has been forgotten, and and suddenly you know she is is as loathed and worrisome as Hermione was to his erstwhile best friend. So the whole thing begins to repeat itself in little. Um, and you know, I think sometimes Shakespeare's just saying, you know, that old the older generation is so fucked that it's only the younger generation who've got any chance of healing this up. And of course, that happens again in in the Tempest, where actually it's Miranda and Ferdinand who have to just somehow take this forward. You know, Prospero's about to do. I am a jealous father, and I'm going to go nuts. And if you sleep with him or she sleeps with you, then I'm going to kill you. You know, with as many things as I possibly can, um, which are terrestrial and supernatural. There's a point where he's about to do that male rage thing about his daughter, and Shakespeare pulls it back just in time and says you know what we're out of this play now and we're just going to hope that these kids 
have learned a few lessons, just as we hope that Florizel and Perdita have learned a few lessons. There's, there's just a chance every time there's a new generation that they might not make such a colossal mess of But it. that very much is the spirit of the late play. Yeah, isn't it? it you is. You don't feel this, this generational no. promise mm. in the earlier In fact, no, quite the reverse sometimes. might be yeah, why I'm no. much more comfortable no. in, the, in, the, might, no. in the middle plays than I am in the late play. I can't cope with all that. It just it goes against the grain for me, all that promise. I can't deal with it. I don't oh, have... We're back to the promised land, don't we? <laughs> 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah, we know where, where, where promised lands lead you. Let I've us, never, never uh... been good with... I suppose I've never been good in... I've never believed optimistically in the young. Even when I was young, I wanted to get out of being young. <laughs> I didn't think being young was a good state. But fine, if Shakespeare thought so at that stage. Let us I talk about how... I think we might have got some more Lears. And... Let us talk about how this project actually came together, as in what constraints <laughs> were placed on you. You had to do this retelling, or whatever we like to call it, uh, in a modern-day setting. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as a cover version because that seems sexier than the retelling. I think I'm in Charles and Mary Lamb Tales from Shakespeare when right. we get to the retelling. Yeah, retelling's yes. awkward. You know, yes. and it, just, it makes me feel ill. I think it should be a you know, picture of an oak tree and somebody lying underneath it on the cover, you know, if we're doing retellings. But, no, there weren't... Well, there, were, there was a big fight about the title because I just said, look, I'm not calling it The Winter's Tale and that's that. And they Endless screams and shouts, but in the end, if you just you know just sit down, they have to give way. I wanted to call mine a wilderness of monkeys. It's a great title. It's, I really wanted that, but uh, there was then a feeling that it sounded a little rarefied. It also might sound like an African travel book. Uh, <laughs> I think there already is an African travel book called A Wilderness of Monkeys. I still wanted to call it that. Now it's called Shylock is my name, and that has that has a power. And it, it is that Shylock's answer to yes, um, it is a line Portia, from yeah. Yes, Portia yeah. comes in and says yeah. that extraordinary line, yeah. uh, which is the merchant here and which is the Jew. What? Yeah. I mean, yeah. given given that you know, that, first of all, you should know which is which is the Jew because he's the one that's covered in spit for a start. But the fact that she doesn't opens up that whole scene and makes you wonder what Portia might be. And Portia offers at that moment promise before she becomes, you know, the, the, the promise of mercy before her mercy turns to ash and she shows less mercy than... You know, the quantity of mercy is not strained, she said, but by God does she strain it. And he, which is the merchant here, and which is the Jew, and presumably in response to that being called the Jew, the Jew, Shylock said, Shylock, Shylock is my, is my name. name. He's not just identifying himself as not the merchant, which also the audience needs to be reminded because often the audience thinks the merchant is... often. There's, a, there's that confusion. The merchant of Venice is, is the is the Jew, but it's not the Jew. So he's he's kind of defining himself against that you know that contemptuous phrase, the the Jew, Shylock is my name. So you've had your wrangles in your case over uh, which play that you're going to do, Howard. Your your arguments over the title. You're sitting down to do this reversioning, reimagining something of Shakespeare. How does it? actually work how do you bring Shakespeare into this process but still remain Jeanette Winterson Howard Jacobson the writer for me the, the first part was I, I was on a train actually coming back up from France and I suddenly said I you know you, you get lines so I knew the first line was going to be I saw the strangest sight tonight and I thought I have to invert the structure to make this work because you know in the play you've got act one where the jealousy happens and Hermione is put on trial she appears to be dead uh the first child is also dead, and then poor Perdita is banished to kites, bears, wolves, and ravens. Um, all of that happens. Uh, and what I wanted to do was do the abandoned baby scene up front straight away. Um, 
and, and make that into the dramatic moment because and, and then go backwards into the story of Leo as he is in mind uh, and his jealousy and his whole story. So, you know, it, it begins on this, this terrible stormy night in a place called New Bohemia, uh, where this black guy coming home from playing in the bar, uh, you, you know, he, he sees what looks like a homicide and then he realises it's connected to some baby that's been left behind in a baby hatch at the hospital. Yes, you invent this yeah. horrible dystopian thing, the baby hatch. Well, there are baby hatches all over the world, I'm sorry to say. But they're and not... Romania and Romania. Yes, they are. It's a sort of... What I mean is that it's, it's become a kind of... A sort of accepted... I mean, people mm. argue about whether they should exist in yeah, your, they in your well, book, don't they? Just pop an abandoned baby mm. in, like a laundry hatch. Yeah, there's many in Romania, oh lots in China. Oh um, it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a well-heated uh, cubicle. And you, the idea is that there would be no stigma for the mother. And the ba as soon as the baby's in there and the lid's closed, it sets an alarm off in a hospital or a charitable foundation. And someone comes in and picks up the baby. So what happens here is that, you know, it, it, in my story, um, Anthony Gonzalez, who's the son of Mexican gardener, is, is sent by Leo to take the baby, uh, supposedly to, to Polixenes, you know, because he says he's the father, take it to him, get him out of the way. Um, for various reasons, he has to hide the child in a baby hatch because he's being pursued for the, the sum of money that he's carrying as well. Um, and that's at, that's at the point when uh, Shep, my black piano player, who takes the place of the shepherd in the story, uh, Shep and his son Flo, who would, would be the clown, they come along and they find the baby and they decide to look after her. They're, you know, they're evangelical Christians. They're going to look after this kid. So that's healing a wound as well. Isn't yes, he? his, yeah, his wife has died. So mm. I've decided I would make all that happen at the beginning and then move into the story of Leo uh, and, and, and his wife rather than front that. So there was a structural question, but once I'd done that, it seemed very natural and it eased up the awkwardness of, of the play. There is an awkwardness in the structure after the explosive beginning and then the sort of lunatic pastoral you get landed into. I wanted to get myself out of that. So by inverting the structure, um, I was able to move forward. That was the centre. To me, that's the central problem of the play. How you freed yourself. Yeah, you so that's what that I had to do. Yourself. I had a structural issue that I had to, to, had to resolve. Howard, footballers. The Golden Triangle. Yeah. So all this, yeah. all this is yeah. where you took. This is your Venice. Well, you begin by, I imagine everybody does. You, you begin by having a naive idea. I'll do a modern equivalent. You know, everything will be equivalent. Mm. Um, and then I thought, this is brilliant. I'll set it in Little Venice. Won't that be? A, and then you thought, oh, come on, grow up. Um, so I decided I wanted to tell a, a, a contemporary, yes, a contemporary version. Of, of the story with a father and a daughter going off the rails and a world that this daughter falls in with, which I thought would be, in memory, it's Belmont in The Merchant of Venice, where these unbelievably um, mercenary people and with, with contemptuous minds and, and um, much more materialistic attitudes than Shylock could even dream of uh, play, play at living a, a, a generous, magnanimous life. I thought that sounds like South Manchester to me, where the footballers live. And there's a little area of expensive Cheshire, North Cheshire, South Manchester, called the Golden Triangle. So I thought Belmont, the Golden Triangle, will have, will do something there. But none of this, none of this was going to work for me. Um, well, none of this was working for me until I realised I had, to, I wanted Shylock. I didn't want. It's all very well having a kind of a modern equivalent. There isn't really a modern equivalent. I wanted Shylock. 
I wanted to do something with Shylock. I wanted him, I wanted him to be there. So there's kind of a leap of leap of faith, really. The novel, the novel begins with a, a contemporary Jewish uh, hero who's a father, uh, who's the one whose daughter's going off the rail, going to see, going to tend his mother's grave uh, in in South Manchester, and seeing Shylock there. Actually, Shylock. And Shylock is Shylock, Shylock. is there. The Shylock, uh, who's not walked off the stage. What happened to Shylock happens to him when he talks about it as in life. These are the things that happen to him. This isn't a saved Shylock, by the way. This isn't a Shylock made nicer or sweeter. This, I believe, is everything I do is faithful to, to the Shylock as Shakespeare gives us to him in, 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 in his language and so on. But I... But I I very much wanted Shylock and, and, and his wife, although there's just that one line, Leia gave it to me, Leia gave it to me um, when I was a bachelor. That, that just opened everything. Um, so he's standing by, the, by his wife's grave um, talking to her, as he's been doing, if you like, for 400 years. He's just been doing this. And wherever he, wherever he happens to find himself, she's a kind of, it's a words worthy, words worthy in death. She is everywhere. She's rolled round with rocks and stones and trees. So she might be, she's available to, to be talked to anywhere he finds himself. And that, of course, is, um, takes a liberty with, with realism. But once you go with this, uh, you go with it. And it's my sense that... Um, that people very quickly, readers very quickly become used to the idea that there's a modern story being told and that Shylock is here. He's a modern man in that he speaks a modern English, he doesn't speak archaic English, but these events have happened. These events have happened to him. And that gave me all sorts of opportunities, I thought, because uh, he is, Shakespeare presents him as a very intelligent man, very quick-witted, very sharp, tough, hard, obdurate, uh, unforgiving, yes, Um but but with a quick turn of phrase and a quick mind, um, and he is set against these other these other unlovely people, and that I thought would give me an opportunity for satire um, of a knockabout kind that I'd not done for a little while. So I have a lot of fun with the Golden Triangle crowd, um, and uh, well, a lot of fun writing about Shylock too. But the novel does does move between kind of anger between and poignancy, and, mm. and and I hope a wild comedy. So fun, liberating to an extent, energising. Is that how you both found it? Did you ever chafe? Did you ever think, actually, I need to get rid of this? This Shakespeare is sitting on my back. I need to get rid of this. I wish I was writing my own book. Or, or were they quickly your own books? Well, I can say um, that Shakespeare has always been sitting on my back since I, since I began reading, really. And certainly, uh, you know, as a writer, he's, he's who I hear all the time. Uh, and I've no idea to get him off my back at all. You know, he can sit on my you back want him as long as I, I, you know, if you're going to have anybody on your back, he's the one you want in your back. And he is, I mean, he's almost indistinguishable now from the English language. I have no sense, actually, of, of what Shakespeare is like. I have no sense of a personality with Shakespeare. I think alone among writers, you don't, I anyway, don't, don't, don't know who, who he is. It's like a force really. Um, it's a kind of an impersonal force. It's not like God. It's not like having hearing God. I hear Shakespeare, and sometimes I, I want to say the way other people might hear God or Marx or something. Um, but he's so different from that because whereas a God or a political or a, a political hero um, forces you to think in, in one what gives you laws, uh, limits you um, in, 
to that degree. Shakespeare, the wonderful thing about hearing Shakespeare is that you are, your, mind, your mind is free to imagine. Um, and your mind is free to imagine in language and in words. And I don't think you can be, an, certainly an English writer, without hearing Shakespeare at every turn. So I certainly wasn't looking for a liberation from him. Uh, I can't hear him enough. It, but it was wonderful, therefore, um, to, be, to be further in him, if you like, to be further immersed in it, even than one normally is. Jeanette, was it like that for you? I didn't feel any particular reverence or worry because Shakespeare wouldn't, he nicked everything anyway. I mean, he just borrowed, you know, there's a lot, lot of anxieties now about uh, plagiarism, um, you know, who's, who's taking from what, you know, whether it's, you know, as simple um, as, as, you know, as blurred lines uh, uh, and all the stuff that came around that. Did they nick it from Marvin Gaye's Gotta Give It Up? You know, everybody's sort of obsessed at the minute with where stuff comes from. Like, there's some pure form out there, some platonic pure form where ideas come from. Whereas, in fact, the whole thing is a collage anyway uh, and a conflagration and a reinvention and always a cover version. I mean, what else is live if it's not a cover version? So I think the idea of just taking something that exists, which is itself a mishmash of things that already existed, um, and then putting that together in a new way seems to me to be much truer uh, to the creative process and to the human process you know of what we inherit and what we invent um, you know there's a you know we come into the world we don't come in as tabula rasa we come in you know immediately formed by and forming opinions we think they're our own they're not we think we've got ideas of our own they're not the whole thing is endlessly you know going back into the mix and coming out again so to be able to take a text and, and riff on it like that you know is is it, it it's a challenge but it, it's also a great excitement and and to know that, that your way is clear as long as, for me, the thing to do was to keep to the spirit of the play, the absolute spirit of it, which, you know, as I've said, is this sense of a second chance, of some uh, arrival at self-knowledge um, and at some possibility of the next generation doing it better, even with all the understandings that that probably won't work out. So that's why when I've ended the book, you know, there's a point where I actually just pull out and, and talk about Shakespeare within the book and then say, look, let the last word be hers, and then there's a little um, monologue for Perdita. And she ends the book for us because she is the chance to me of going forward. So, you know, that then I felt I've kept to the spirit of it, certainly not to the letter. It's funny, just hearing you talk about that and agreeing, of course, with that. Um, and I've suddenly realised, uh, um, for the first time, that my last word goes to, actually, in the novel, goes to the, the modern equivalent of Jessica. I never intended mm, that, mm. but she seems to have got it. Um, and despite my pessimism and lack of belief in, <laughs> in, in, in the future and uh, absolutely inbuilt hostility to anybody young, and by young I mean younger than me, uh, she's nonetheless, she nonetheless gets, gets the word. But everything that uh, Jeanette said about you know, the, 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 the fun and the exhilaration of it, I agree. And everything about not worrying about mm. taking somebody else's thing. I mean, Shakespeare just did care. take, you know, he just yeah. took. Um, I think it's. I now. I'm now beginning to feel. I'm going to take. I'm never going to write a book again that isn't taken from somebody else because it doesn't half free you from the worry about story, which has never interested me. Very so your much own anyway. invention. That that point you can put on hold. You can say, here is this story. My invention can go to something else. Exactly, and it can go to where I've only ever wanted it to go anyway, which is in um, thinking and talking and and being a you know a species of poet. Um, and uh, 
riffing riffing is quite nice i can't can't do cover version because that's not my vocabulary but <laughs> riffing i can do or i keep thinking on whoever it's um what's the musical term about variations on a theme <laughs> variations on a theme of pagan that's what it felt one was doing doing variations on the on a theme of and that's what he always did variations on a theme of but at the same time um there was a kind of not critical proselytizing but some some feeling that I also wanted to argue for some of the play's meanings, um, which I feel have, you know, been misled or, or misread. Um, so I never wanted to write a... There's, a... there's an impulse in me always to write an essay. I like essays. I like critical essays. You know, we're always... People are told that creative writing classes, God help them, you know, show, don't tell, which is, of course, quite right. But then the minute you've learned show, don't tell, let's have telling back. Because telling can be fantastic. Telling can be really, really interesting. When you're reading one of the great writers who can tell, being told something by George Eliot is a privilege. You know, tell me more. Tell me, please tell me more. Um, There's not much point being a writer anyway if you're going to do it as a sort of subversion of the visual arts. Exactly. I mean, when anybody, the show don't tell you, just drives me nuts. What I'm getting from both of you as we're talking about Shakespeare is one of the things that made this, not just this project, but also your kind of lifelong interaction with Shakespeare, uh, is this idea of being able to sort of think through ideas, that what he did and what you both want to do is think through ideas on the page. Is that right? Yes, yes. Given that in him, it'd be wrong to say you don't oh, you don't usually feel it as an idea in him because he does entertain ideas and he does dramatize ideas. But he does, but he does dramatize ideas and also orchestrates them. I mean, the great thing about about the great thing, one of the many things you learn from Shakespeare is nothing has a value if you like until it's until it's tested. Yes, it's true that when you're in the graveyard scene, you're sort of you feel Hamlet's right. You know, Hamlet is right to be as morbid as that. Not to be as morbid as that is to be a fool the way they is to be dead, the way the gravediggers are fooled. And yet the gravediggers have their substance and their yes, position. Yes, there are too. always other yes. positions. And there's Horatio saying, mm. it's lovely, do you think I is, were it to consider too curiously? Right. Of course, Horatio thinks considering anything is too, is too curious. But you feel the weight of his position. So he is absolutely, Shakespeare is absolutely, above all things, a writer and not a philosopher. He is a, he is a writer. You don't know what Shakespeare thinks. You don't know what Shakespeare believes. That doesn't mean he doesn't entertain and make concrete and make visual ideas. But you're not there, you're... You're, you're not there to take away, you know, a, a quintessence of Shakespearean yes, it doesn't reduce to a, a, no, to a line. No. Um, but it's sort of, the, to me anyway, the, the play of ideas. I mean, The Winter's Tale, for example, is the play of ideas about abandonment, about the passage of time, about how all these people fit together in this very complicated mm. story. Mm. And Shakespeare never worries about things like just saying, well, I'm now going to slip, slip, slip past 16 years. Um, in fact, it was a good... I borrowed that when I wrote... Um, my memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, because I suddenly thought, I want to miss out 25 years. I don't want to write that at all. So I just had an, an, a page which just said intermission. It said, you know, I'm now going to miss out 25 years. Um, 
uh, which was really a, a nod to what happens in the winter's tale when time comes on and says, you know, well, while you've, you've been out there and uh, 16 years have passed and lo and behold, Perdita's grown up. Again, it's one of those gaps that Shakespeare just doesn't bother to fill. He suddenly thinks we're going somewhere else now, okay? Um, just just get with it, which I love because, you know, there's this it, it's sleight of hand, but it's also absolute confidence that, that time itself is a player. But you can manipulate it. You can bend it. You don't. You don't have to belong to time, in the way that you know, human beings do, or we think we do. You know, it's our tragedy, but it's also you know the glory is that we don't belong to time. We can escape it, and the plays are really often about escaping time in that way. Even though you know your 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 fate appears to be so bound up with it. So you know, I think. In, in, inside of working with a Shakespeare play, yes, you've got this kaleidoscope of possibility. You're never, you're, you're never stopped for where to go next because all you have to do at any point is, is to go back and look at the play. And I'm, I'm sure I would find this, but the pleasure of reading it again and again, mm -hmm. the close reading of one particular play, um, which you don't do later in life generally. You don't read the whole thing 10 or 15 times anymore. And, you know, you get a working knowledge of Shakespeare. You've seen them all, you've read them. But then to start to study that again, of the language, the ideas to unpack it and then to work with it. You know, it's really like having a, a you know, exploding it in your garage, and you know, you've got all the pieces, um, and then you can start building something different with those pieces. You know, Autolycus is a great rogue in Shakespeare. He's um, Simon Foreman, when he first saw the play performed in 1611, put that Autolycus was his favorite character. He thought, he, you know, he's a very great rogue, spelt R O G, because you know, their spelling was a bit wobbly in those days. Um, and I thought, what shall I do with Autolycus? And I decided I'd, I'd, I'd get him to run a second-hand car place called Autos Like Us. Um, because why not? That's the fun that you can have with Shakespeare. <laughs> it's so interesting just finally hearing both of you. Of course, when you talk about your memoir and The Winter's Tale, you see the parallels between those stories and the structure. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious in a way and suddenly I kind of look at, at some of your novels Howard and think you know some of the the sort of ideas that you take a man who is desperate to be a Jew even though he isn't a man who is desperate to feel jealous of his wife they are these kind of reduced formulations from which you can then sort of go crazy with ideas and I wondered if you had both sort of in a way looked back on your own work differently once you'd been through this this project or whether it was always there I didn't, uh, partly because, well, as you've just reminded me, you know, half the things came from Shakespeare anyway, so I wasn't surprised to find myself. It wasn't, I wasn't in new territory. To be in Shakespeare's territory wasn't to be in new territory, but to be liberated from the unities of time and thing was, because I've never quite done that before. I've only just started to move away. I've always, I don't have the confidence to move away from absolutely, you know, now, real time. So to, be, to, to, have, a, to have a Shylock 500 years Oh, was a real liberation. But in an odd way, I kind of was pulling, I wasn't so much entering Shakespeare's world, I suppose I shouldn't admit this, as pulling, as pulling the play back to mine. Um, because I have been inclined uh, in recent years to begin and end of it, I think you've commented on this yourself, to begin and end every novel in a cemetery. <laughs> uh, and I've done it again. I felt, you know, there's, there's actually, I don't think there is a cemetery in the Merchant of Venice, but I kind of feel that, well, there is no, now. well, there is now. <laughs> exactly. So it begins, it begins in a, it doesn't, well, I won't tell you where it ends, but it begins in a, in a, in a cemetery. I must say, when I opened the book uh, and saw that it began in a cemetery, it wasn't the biggest surprise I've ever had. Oh, God. Put, oh, no, you didn't like say, that. oh, no, not again. <laughs> 
You didn't but wonder whether did... you just picked, mistakenly picked up one of my old books. Uh, well, but no, then the footballers came in and I thought we are in new territory. So, you know, <laughs> Jeanette. I, I, I think I like to forget my work as soon as I've done it. Really. And, and, and now, you know, when, you, when you've had after 30 years and you have a body of work, you pick it up and you th- it's a sort of surprise. It, it, it's that paradox of a familiar surprise, isn't it? You, you know that you wrote it and you do remember things, but it does also then seem very distanced from you so the, the, the for me working with the Shakespeare I suppose it's the pleasure of having got here but a having survived 30 years as a human being and as a writer and not not crashed and burned or disappeared or gone off you know the horizon somewhere um and being able to hold the line uh you know in, in terms of being able to do what I want to do in the world and and save myself in the process um and somehow now to be at this point where you can work with someone like Shakespeare from a, from a point where you you know you have a maturity uh, and a capacity, then that 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 seems to be both a, a great chance and a coming together of things. So it's a new place to inhabit, but it's also a culmination or a fulfilment of all the other places that you've inhabited along the way to allow you to get here. And probably for me, something about going to the late plays is 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 to do with the stage that I'm at, also. Um, you know, I think if you tried to kill yourself and you didn't succeed and you do feel as though you've got a second life and that that life, it becomes infinitely precious, perhaps in a way it wasn't before. It wasn't that I had a recklessness about my life, though perhaps I did. It was that it simply that I didn't think I could live anymore if I couldn't live well, if I couldn't um, live in the beauty of what I knew to be the truth. So that the darkness I always thought was not the truth, that there was a beauty there that, that I had been locked out from, which is uh, why, partly for me at that time, suicide was a rational decision. So I thought, I simply cannot live like this, therefore it would be better if I did not live at all. But having come on the other side of that, uh, you know, it, it, I, can, I can say it is completely different. It's a different approach to, to being and to doing. And somehow that has seemed to segue into this 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 new reading for me of, of, of Shakespeare and the late plays and going back there both, both as a private reader and as a public writer thank you both very much for joining me today thank you thank you that's all from us this month we hope you've enjoyed listening many thanks to my guests Jeanette Winterson and Howard Jacobson if you've missed any episodes of the vintage podcast or would like to listen again you can find everything on our website www vintage-books.co.uk and you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think so if you have two minutes please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye.